The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. On this episode, we'll take a look at the rising tide of misinformation and disinformation, discussing how political and social movements have formed around issues like COVID-19, 5G technology and vaccinations. We'll examine the sources of these conspiracies and the conditions that have allowed and encouraged them to grow, seeking to find answers to a couple of key questions. How did we get here and where do we go now? My guests today are Massey University Professor Richard Shaw and Dr Jess Berenson Shaw, no relation. Professor Shaw is a Professor in Politics and Director of the University's Arts Programme and has produced research on the role of information hygiene in international politics as well as the vital role of critical thinking in the humanities more generally. Dr Berenson Shaw is a public narrative researcher and advisor with a PhD in health psychology. A dedicated advocate for good science, she's worked extensively across the government and for not-for-profit sectors and in 2018 published A Matter of Fact, Talking Truth in a Post-Truth World, a book which sought to identify innovative ways to talk effectively and empathetically about contentious information. Thank you so much for coming. And could I start with you, Dr. Jess? I'm not going to use sure at all. <laughs> How do we define misinformation, disinformation, and is that what we should call it? Yeah, so I now call the kinds of information that we have a problem with and that we're seeing false information. And I think about the different types of false information that we're being exposed to uh, in terms of really the motivations of people who both create it and spread it. And so we know that something called disinformation, so what we call disinformation, tends to be created with people with malicious intent. So that's kind of people who create it in order to gain something from it, power, money, wealth, political influence. Misinformation tends to be false information that is spread by people who don't have malicious intent. In fact, often people might be spreading it because they're concerned or they're worried or there's actually genuine kind of care for each other, which lies at the at the heart of it. So I think that's really important to think about um, the types of false information we see from the perspective of the, the motivations of people who spread it. And Richard, how do we realise that it's misinformation or disinformation, not just a difference of opinion? Jess has got this one really nicely. Much of the difference between those two things, Stacey, lies in the question of intent. And the point that I want to pick up from Jess is that notion that it's purposive. This stuff doesn't just kind of pop out of thin air for no particular reason, particularly the promulgation of disinformation, and especially when that's wrapped up in a narrative that we might call a conspiracy theory, which is like a bigger container for lots of little bits of disinformation. There is often a reason for 
for that. It's not accidental. It's directed at the acquisition of power or an intention to change a system or to secure a particular political end. And so I think the, the, the focus on disinformation, what, what, what I think is uh, apposite and what is particularly concerning at this juncture in New Zealand's political history is the is evidence of an increase in the promulgation of disinformation and evidence also that it's finding its way into the public domain, into political discourse, and it might be having consequences that Jess has written a good deal about. So how did we get here? <laughs> Jess, Jess has just given a little laugh, which probably means how long have you got? And did you bring sleeping bags? Because <laughs> we'll be here for ages. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me because if you look historically, and I always think that our historians are really important scholars in this conversation, actually, is false information is really not new at all. You know, it's been around as long as humans have been trying to acquire power for different reasons. And I think there's this great, you know, kind of distressing but interesting story about the false information that was created, um, you know, by this group of powerful wealthy uh, men in the 1860s in Auckland and New Zealand who were trying to acquire the land in Waikato and they used their access and in fact their ownership of the local papers in order to push really false information about Māori. They started a whole kind of you know, it's talked about the kind of conspiracy theory, but really there is this entire narrative around Māori and the violence of Māori, which they really pulled on in order to achieve ultimately a whole series of laws which disenfranchised stolen land for Māori, ultimately led to, you know, the New Zealand wars. And, and so I think for me, we're here because humans want power and we're here because uh, misinformation is one of the tools or disinformation or false information is one of the tools that humans use in order to gain power and wealth. But also we're here because human beings are naturally alarmed by any kind of information um, from a kind of evolutionary perspective. It, it serves our purposes if there's alarming information that might harm us or might harm the people we care about. And so we share that information. We're naturally kind of inclined to do that in the same way that we're inclined to share information that makes us feel happy or joyous. But we now he have technologies which allow that information to spread further, faster and much deeper than before. So what was the newspaper is now social media. Can yeah. we blame it on social media though, Richard? No, I don't think we can blame it on social media. And I just want to add a, um, to come come of a kind of circuitous way, Stacey, to your question about the role and the significance of social media. Just to talk about what Jess said about none of this being new, what, what might be new is the speed and the um, the scope and the extent to which disinformation can be consciously spread through different platforms, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I think if anybody's read anything about the history of Parihaka, the events that led to the invasion of Parihaka on, on the 5th of November 1881, you look at the activities of John Byrne, who was the Native Minister at the time, and the case, the narrative that was constructed around the use of violence in Te Pahua up there. That's a really beautiful case study. I use the word beautiful advisedly in the construction of a deliberately misinformed or disinformed story to justify state action. So this, is, this stuff has been with us right, for, for a considerable period of time. And as Jess rightly says, it's partly because people search for narratives. These are largely sense-making devices. There, there are a couple of things about why we're here now. One of them, I think, is the return of the state. 
Um, and there was, a, there was an historical story around the withering of the state in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, which results in certain states of being for people, senses of alienation, uh, exclusion, discrimination, uh, powerlessness, which provides some of the preconditions for the creation of, of disinformation and the wrapping of those things up into narratives around conspiracy theories. But we've seen post-COVID the return of the state in a really major fashion. So what we, what we have in very immediate terms is a pandemic and we have big pharma and we have the state. And, all, and those three kind of independent variables are all significant um, flags for conspiracy theorists. They're like touchstones. So that, I think, is one of the reasons why. But again, to Jess's point, I think historically there's a much wider cultural and historical and political context. Some of it is global. I think that the the, the current president of the United States has normalised certain forms of behaviour which have enabled and legitimised the repetition of that behaviour in other parts of the world, including in Aotearoa. But I think also we should look at our own backyard and look at 30 or 40 years worth of state and economic deconstruction and reconstruction in ways which hold individuals responsible for their circumstances, which have changed many people's understandings of what it means to be a citizen of this place, which have changed the circumstances in which people work, which have shrunk the public realm, which have done some violence to public broadcasting. And we could probably look at each of those factors as well and say, oh yeah, if you put all that together, then you have some you have a climate, you have, you have a kind of a predisposition that might be welcoming of or accommodating of some of the things that we see being pumped out. You know, one of the things that I think has happened and has got us here slightly is, uh, you know, I come from a public health background, so I often think about what are the things and the conditions and the, I guess, the upstream environments that actually build and create our health. And we have, through the kind of removal of um, the government as a, a kind of a, a responsible agent and creating those conditions for people's health, also lost in some ways that ability to get ahead of the changes that have happened in in our kind of social environment. And, and one of those big changes is obviously the information environment has changed. And what I would say to that is we haven't had that ability to think about the information environment as a determinant of people's health. And what do we need to actually create a healthy information environment and especially the kind of the agency that government has in that. Um, the muscle slightly has withered, I think, in in the, in the government services and th- in terms of thinking about how do we create a healthy information environment. That, for me, does definitely play a role in it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Jess on that particular point. And I think it's a great phrase, the withering of the muscle of the state. There's something else in what you said, Jess, that I, I wanted to pick up on. I'm interested in Stacey's and your thoughts on this. And that concerns the extent to which the provision of more or better or clearer or more accurate information is going to solve the issue of disinformation. Because in the scholarship that comes out of political science, which is my background, um, uh, would suggest that at some point what happens to somebody who cleaves to a a narrative which I would recognise as a conspiracy theory is that their entire apparatus for making sense of things changes. And there's a pointy-headed word comes from the Greek called epistemology, which is how you know a thing. So there's the world. That's a pen that I'm holding. You can't see it because this is a podcast. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to call it a pen. But if Stacey Morrison calls it a cricket bat, 
then we've got a problem. We can't even have a conversation about it. So she's seeing a completely different thing to the thing that I'm seeing. But not only I'm just saying that, my friend is too. And then you heard it from my other friends, so it must be true. That's right. So therefore, it actually isn't a pen. It's a cricket bat. If your sense-making devices are so fundamentally changed that you think that's a cricket bat, then it's hard for us to have a conversation. And no matter how many times I tell you, Stacey, it's a pen, you're going to think it's not. It's a cricket bat. And if your whānau do and the members of your local church do and your netball club or whatever the case may be, then you have a problem at scale around just how sense is made. And every effort that I make to try and convince you that that is a pen just provides you with further confirmation of the conspiracy that is trying to stop you from thinking that's a cricket bat. Mm. Hard to have those conversations. Sheila Jasanoff, who's a philosopher of science, really, I guess I would call her, talks about the technologies of humility, which is really this idea that we acknowledge that there there are multiple truths, actually, that science is not, in fact, black and white and right and wrong in the, in the ways that perhaps science and the medical profession have had a narrative around um, for, for quite a few years, and that part of actually understanding why people come to believe the things that they believe is through the process of listening and understanding that there may be some elements of truth, right? That conspiracy theories don't necessarily always come out of nowhere. And I think about this often in terms of the pharmaceutical industry. Like, the pharmaceutical industry has engaged in some absolutely appalling behaviours over over time. You know, the, the harm they've done to people and, and the unethical treatment and behaviour has been, you know, quite enormous, I think, in the medical profession as well. You know, I think about what happened at National Women's Hospital in itself. You know, there are realities for people in which um, the basis of believing false information has kind of fertile ground. So it's really important for my, I think, from my perspective to think about this from how are we listening, how are we hearing and acknowledging that actually there is truth to some of people's concerns. There is real lived experience that might inform their ways of knowing and our conversation about what is right and what is wrong. And I think if we can start from that place, then we can find uh, different techniques and tools that are going to work more effectively than just having a, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, this is science, listen to doctors, you know, which is a, a pretty common refrain that you hear. And frankly, I just think is far too shallow for the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, and what it does is it give, it gives experts, it gives anybody who can, can claim some kind of credentialised knowledge essentially a free pass to say this is the thing. There's something really important in what Jess is saying, I think, which has to do with the, 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 the politics of expertise. And it is entirely right and proper and appropriate and actually a really fundamental thing in a democratic society like ours that we question and we probe and we interrogate people's claim to expertise, people's truth claims. So there is nothing inherently um, conspiratorial about asking questions about the knowledge that experts produce because sometimes it's really self-referential. Sometimes what it also does is it shuts out the tacit knowledge that is often out there in communities and amongst people who might not have PhDs or even bachelor's degrees, but they have heaps of knowledge and experience. It's kind of a craft knowledge. And and the way in which we credentialise expertise in Te Aupākehā anyway uh, can often, not always, but often crowd that out. So that's a, that's really important. We need to ask questions of experts and we need not to be dismissed as conspiracy theorists when we do that. 
But I think the um, uh, the question around conspiracy theories, what, one thing which I find of concern, uh, but also of, of, of deep interest, and there's more and more work coming out of things like the, the, the uh, disinformation project, which Jess was referring to before, is the way in which if you, if you hold to a view that things that happen in the world are the result of secret plots being led by powerful people or powerful institutions, you probably also hold to the view that everything is a consequence of that action, that there are no such things as unintended consequences, that there's no such thing as a hidden hand or there's no such thing as chance. Every single thing that happens, that's because some fella or some falless or some organisation out there, some powerful organisation who wants to keep that secret from you has planned it in that particular way. So it, it becomes very difficult to have a conversation if you have a totalising narrative that simply dismisses everything political as a consequence of the actions of powerful people who want to keep things secret from you uh, and if you don't accept that there is chance and there is serendipity and there are unintended consequences as well. So as you referred to it before, Jess, it's about feeling that the top-down information can't be trusted because you feel you're on the bottom and perhaps that social media seems like more of a uh, a fairer or more even playing ground for information. Is that a perception? Yeah, it's super interesting because I think sometimes what I hear um, people saying, and I find this really interesting as a researcher, which is... Um, you don't you don't know about research. You you think that you've researched something, but I spend hours researching something, and so um, and there's this kind of dismissal of people who might believe false information as not having the skills or the tools. And there's some really fascinating studies, anthropological studies that have come out of the states to show that often when people believe false information they actually have a very inquiring process around it. So, for example, um, with fundamental Christians believing a lot of white, more what we would say is white supremacist ideas, uh, they actually have an inquiring approach to information that they hear. They will, for example, look on the internet and they will go and research. And so they are, they are actually engaging in an inquiry. What they don't realise, of course, is that all of these tools and sources which they're using to research have been infiltrated by false ideas and false information. But when we come at them and say, you've done no thinking about this, you haven't inquired, you don't know about research, I know about research, we're immediately kind of trying to slap our expertise on top of this as a kind of, really, what it comes down to is you're stupid. That's the that's the fundamental argument. And so those sorts of approaches are incredibly unhelpful because actually there's a lot of complexity and nuance that goes on into why people believe certain things. And we said in the vaccine space a lot, you know, People who are both intelligent and well-educated will find research that suits their purposes and feel like they are well-informed about the types of uh, information that they're getting. So, you know, there, there really is the sense that um, people are kind of doing their own research now. And so an expert, as, as Richard said, the kind of a high-level expert, I'm the expert response, doesn't take that into account. So then how do we critically analyse the information we are taking on board or consuming? You know, it's really interesting because I think there has been this democratisation of of the kind of 
access to research. You know, I would say, you know, even when I was doing my PhD, it was still incredibly hard to get access to research information. Well, now most of what was held behind kind of the the gates of academic institutions or is, is, is freely available to people. But the ability to um, interrogate that, know, for example, what a good quality study is, think about what the, not just what individual studies might say, but what the kind of body of research across a period of time of which you've been studying it yourself for a long time actually says and what is it in making, as you said, making meaning from that. Um, that doesn't exist. That hasn't been democratized, and and to some extent, I don't I don't think it is a particularly viable or practical um, solution to expect everybody to be able to read, for example, a randomized control trial or 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 do a systematic review or or whatever. But I I do think there is needing to be some sort of switch in the way we think about teaching critical thinking um, and that it has to start earlier than it currently does and that it has to have a very specific focus on and kind of be grounded in an understanding that there is a huge amount of false information that is now created. And so I think any kind of critical thinking kind of process or program that we that we develop really has to be in the context of this changed environment. But also in the context of social media because yep. then we're going to need our rangatahi and our children to be able to critically analyse 15 second TikTok <laughs> and to be able to yep. have that kind of dexterity of thought to go is this true? Do I can I cross check that? And and a cross check can be as simple as following through to actually look at their website. You know those kind of things are lay people terms as opposed to what an academic perhaps can do. But is that one of the ways that we can critically look at what we're consuming? Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean those and those technologies, those software packages, those fact checkers, fact checker packages are improving all the time. But another thing you can do is you can talk to your koro or to your auntie. Mm. So there are respected people who have. Various kinds of knowledge, credentialised or craft or otherwise, is kind of beside the point. But they are the kinds of people in your whānau and in your communities and in your churches and in your sports organisations who you know might be able just to ask a question of you or to encourage you to reflect in particular ways. Um, time, I think, the way in which social media condenses and contracts time is problematic. But I think possibly the the, the, the most problematic thing, the biggest obstacle, and I would look to Jess and others. I was just going to kick this one entirely to touch really is what do you do? What do you do in a world in which facts no longer exist? What do you do when the President of the United States has diminished and demeaned the status of factual information to such a degree that that behaviour is now normalised around the world? Because what a, what a fact essentially does is it allows me to have a conversation with you Stacey, and with you, Jess, and with anybody else about something that we might disagree on. We can find a, we can find a kind of common language or another place that is not deep within me or deeply within you. We can, to some degree, step out of ourselves and go and just stand over here and have a conversation about this thing because we know there is some external reality that we can claim and we can hover around that. But when that goes, when there is no third space to go to, then the people who get to define how other people live are the people in positions of power and authority and control. So one of the one of the challenging things about the prevalence of 
disinformation and conspiracy theorisation, particularly amongst rangatahi and amongst communities which have suffered from poverty and exclusion in this country, is that the kinds of claims that have been made through the theories which they espouse won't do them any good. Like it'll do further damage, if anything else, is not actually in their best interests. We often, what I find myself in this space is often thinking and talking about behavioural or intervention, individual level interventions to social media. And I think to come right back to where we started and then the beginning about government. Government has a huge amount of agency, actually, to shape our information environment and to shape uh, social media um, industry. You know, these are industries which have been allowed to operate and make money from the provision of false information, which has harmed people. You know, March 15th happened here in New Zealand, in part because social media companies were allowed and have been allowed free reign to create an environment of false and harmful information. So I think I would say before we we push it back onto our young people to do the work of recognising false information. I would push it back up to those in power and with responsibility and say, this is your responsibility to your citizens. You need to do more in this space and work harder and, and really be braver um, around some of those some of those regulations and kind of shaping of our information environment. You know, for me, a good strategy around creating these healthy information environments would have a very strong emphasis on public broadcasting and or, for example, rebuilding both science reporting and journalism, health reporting, but also thinking about what does our reporting around Matauranga Māori look like? You know, uh, what do we do to um, build up capacity and capability around uh, Pacifica knowledge and reporting in that space as well? Because I just think there is a huge um potential to create very strong, healthy information environment where we are pushing forward multiple sources of good knowledge from all of our communities. And that, that is easily accessible for lots of different people in lots of different ways. And we, we don't have enough of it right now. And I appreciate that you bring up a challenge that we have for Matauranga Māori that our oral traditions don't meet, um, say, Park our paradigms of what is research and what is knowledge. So that has been a challenge. But as you say, you ask your koro, you ask your kaumatua, and then value what they say. For instance, they've been through the Spanish flu pandemic. They saw what happened and they saw, they've learned from it. So when we talk about misinformation, disinformation, when people are doing it for their own gain, particularly political power, how can we identify that? Sometimes it's just kind of obvious. If you look at the website of the Advanced New Zealand Party, there are manifestly false claims that are made about a range of things, including the nature of New Zealand's constitution, the objectives of the Labour-led administration, the relationship between Aotearoa New Zealand and the United Nations, and various other claims that are factually wrong. And one of the things that I suspect we could do far better at is is regulating the behaviour of social media platforms. It's big and it's large scale and one country probably cannot exercise too much influence by itself, but there are efforts that have been made post-Christchurch and so on. So there is much more that we can do around that, but that's a political project. What has happened to some parts of our population, some of the people with whom we share this country, is their, their capacity to be a part of the communities they are in has been diminished. They are economically and in other 
respects excluded. Karl Marx and Emil Durkheim wrote about alienation and anomie 150, 200 years ago. These are not new phenomena, but we've allowed these things to develop in this country, and they provide fertile ground for 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 people who who might otherwise have chosen a different kind of information path. So part of the political project, I absolutely agree with Jess, is around the reconstitution of public broadcasting, public health infrastructure and so on, but there is also just a more fundamental political job, and it's a long-term job of rebuilding social capital in this country. But we have an eco-chamber that we've often created for ourselves on social media, Jess. So what's some solutions or strategies when we are in, you know, so many of us participate in social media, for instance? Yeah, so I think, I I often think we we talk about the big structural and systems change that need to happen and we should never take our eye off those and we should be focused well on them. And I think, just responding to what Richard said, you know, Tina Natai says, you know, the provision of good information for Māori communities is part of the Crown's commitment under Tatiriti, right? So these are things that the state needs to be thinking about. But in the meantime, what do we do when we're faced with false information? You know, a lot of my research sits around um, less responding to false information once it's out there because what we know is it's incredibly hard to remove. You know, cognitive psychologists like Lewandowski have been doing research for years on this and what we know is that the minute we try to rebut false information by repeating it, people become more familiar with it, right? We're putting it out there in the information environment, it gets repeated and then it embeds in our memory and all sorts of things. And I think that the research that's come out of Tipunaha Matatini just last week, which showed that actually the level of kind of false informational conspiracy theories hasn't gone up in New Zealand. What has gone up is mainstream media's focus on it. So I think there's a real question for media around what are some perhaps guidance and boundaries that mainstream media can start thinking about in terms of how they deal with false information, knowing that there is a repetition effect. There's this funny old term called pluralistic ignorance, which is the more that we hear a piece of false information, the more we come to believe that a lot of other people share belief in that information and we start to shift our own beliefs. So it's a kind of a laundering effect. And it's really important for people who provide information to understand some of the, the, I guess, the cognitive psychology behind some of that so that we're not ourselves responsible, perhaps, for creating this problem. You know, for me, um, I talk a lot about how do we build effective narratives for truth and for good information. And when Richard said earlier about um, how do we have a conversation when we can't agree on a fact, and in lots of ways, um, that was kind of the point in which I reorientated a lot of my life as an academic, which had been really founded around this idea that there were facts that should be talked about, and that facts were inarguable and black and white. And when I started to investigate it more, really what came through so much was was values. Everything that we think about, everything that we come to know and believe, we filter through the things that matter to us. And so in an environment where facts are up for grabs, 
the best thing we can do is start with conversations about what matters to us and what we value. Because instead of having these things, which I often refer to colloquially as kind of fact-offs, and you'll know what I'm talking about, right, when you sit down with somebody. My fact's bigger than your fact. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and they, you get nowhere, right? You get People get angry. Um, you, you know, there really is very little movement in that space. People might be satisfied for getting one over someone else, and I would have previously put myself in that kind of space, I guess. But much more useful is what are the things that matter to you and what are the things that matter to me? And they're actually a lot more similar than you would think. And that for me is like one of these technologies of humility, which I've talked about, which is how do we start our conversations now? with things that matter because that is a key finding as well to come through in the research. Well, I often think starting with values is actually a deep knowledge from a lot of indigenous cultures anyway, and us Pakia are just picking up on it later in our research. But um, what we see in the research is that when we have a kind of what we'd call a theory-driven response to false information, it's a lot more effective at overcoming false information. And what I mean by a theory-driven, that means we're connecting with the things that matter to people. We're actually giving people a much deeper explanation. We're not just describing a problem or describing how people are wrong, but we're actually giving deeper explanations about how things come to happen and what the solutions are. So a lot of the research that I do now is how can we create these kind of effective narratives in which we put good information and good best knowledge into a public space and really deepen people's thinking so that there's a, I guess, a critical mass of deeper thinking that just exists at a baseline. I have to, I can't resist, I'll have to call that what you were talking about as a conversation that counts, isn't it? It How do we identify, Richard, if we or our whanau are falling towards a rabbit hole in terms of misinformation or disinformation? Well, I suppose we could look at our whanau's feeds. We could track their search histories. We could stalk their company and various other things like that um, would be you know, would be the obvious thing to do. But then, then the question is, well, well, then what? And I like Jess's idea about conversations that count because these conversations really count. And I wonder if there is um, there is a role for for both the state, but also maybe communities and and, and wider whānau and groups of people at local levels to structure conversations in different ways. One of the things that you don't do, I mean, we will know this. Those of us who have children of a certain age, is you don't disparage them, you don't call them names, you don't dismiss them, you try not to be a dickhead yourself because that's a surefire way of driving them further into the rabbit hole. So maybe what you also do is you hold your peace and you listen and you have conversations with others. Um, There are various ways in which the work that I've done anyway, the political science scholarship around citizens' juries and deliberative assemblies and, and various ways in which you structure interaction around public budgets and so on. There are learnings there which are all around conversations and attempts to equalise power and provide discursive opportunities for people to come and share information. It's, it's not clear to me, um, Jess will know this because she's done this work um, more so than I have, whether or not those kinds of technologies necessarily lend themselves to the very hard work of shifting the epistemologies that can lead somebody to identify emotionally with a conspiracy theory or to cleave to disinformation. But I, but I think there are opportunities there in this country that we haven't uh, explored in any systematic way. Like you say, Jess, uh, to look back at our values, aroha ki te tangata. So when we are talking about these things, not to 
uh, write off someone because they have these beliefs that have come about for various reasons? Sometimes there's a lot of love at the heart of misinformation being spread. You know, care for our children is especially something that comes through in the vaccination space. And and so making assumptions about people and immediately getting their backs up is is a really problematic place to start. And I would say there are groups of people that are incredibly hard to move. And we, in our research, we call these the hard to persuade group. Um, and what I would say is that probably from a really practical point of view, and in order to kind of preserve, I guess, our well-being, starting with those people is probably not the best place to start. It's incredibly hard to shift them. They will cleave often to their ideas more strongly and and it actually exhausts us a lot of the time and you'll know those conversations I've had. So so actually a lot of our work needs to sit with those people who kind of exist in a middle space who can be influenced and polarised one way or the other. And I think that's really important to identify who those people are and have conversations initially anyway and think about how we overcome false information with those people perhaps more so and remembering of course the more attention we pay to those people who are in that really hard to persuade or hold very very strongly oppositional ideas the more we amplify it we call this talking through their story or talking through their frame we want to be building our own story about the kind of society we want to live in and build yet cancel culture does the opposite Cancel culture takes the influencer who is spreading some of that information and actively wants to cancel them. My, my view on that one, Stace, is that there are some views which are so repugnant and so violent and the promulgation of which would have such dire consequences for marginalised or vulnerable groups or groups who have been targeted throughout the history of this country or other countries that there is a case for deplatforming that person from not providing them with an opportunity to promote their particular views. On the other hand, if you if you are constantly uh, reproducing separate conversations, if, if people who hold wildly diverging points of views are never in contact, then perhaps you miss the opportunity for the sorts of constructive engagements that Jess has been referring to to take place. So that is a really difficult one, isn't it? That's a gnarly, challenging one. It is often... Uh, a lot easier, whether the, you are on the, the conspiratorial side or not, you're on the left or the right, it is a lot easier and much more emotionally congruent simply to circulate with your own people. It's always the other people who are in echo chambers. It's never you <laughs> and your people. But I think that's something that, uh, that, that we need to be absolutely mindful of. I don't know where that line is. So there we are all looking for it. But you presented some great information and solutions. You've been listening to Conversations That Can't, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. Hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.